Well, there are a couple of things that as we're thinking about the text and thinking about the passage today, there are two dangers in, um, in our approach to Scripture. One thing is, one error is that we would hyper-spiritualize everything. That we would see meaning, of spiritual meaning, in the text when it's simply not there. But also there's an equally serious issue too as well when we under-spiritualize spiritual uh, meaning. There's a book uh, that came out probably in... Uh, probably in my college years, and it was called, and it was by John uh, Ortberg. It was a very popular book, and the book went on to talk a lot about how God wants our obedience, and we got to take risks like Peter did, and so that the first step of obedience was, is always the hardest. And he writes this, and I quote, Only Peter knew that when he sank, Jesus would be there, and he was wholly adequate to save. The other disciples could not know because they never got out of the boat. This is the fundamental truth. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, you've got to take a step of faith. It involves risky obedience. And to a young mind, a 19, 20-year-old, a young collegian, and then a budding seminarian, this affected me profoundly. I know Peter modeled this passion of faith that I could never have. And in many ways, Peter is, should be commended to step out in faith and not necessarily criticize. Because how many of us have actually walked out into a raging sea and decided we're going to surf over the water without a surfboard? But at the same time, I think interpreters go too far and think that the boat, like, represents the church, which begs the question, why then, if that's the church, why was Peter called to go out of it? Other preachers may use this passage to say, well, in the storms of your life, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus, right, and step out in faith, even when you don't make sense, even when it's all raging around you and the waves are coming up to your neck. Or even when you fall down and you fail, when you start sinking like Peter, Jesus is always there to lift you up. Well, I affirm, I just, I totally agree with the truths of those statements. I just feel like as I was praying uh, this week and this morning, I think there's a rush to hyper-spiritualize things that actually we end up under-spiritualizing this text. And I think I just want to walk through this passage. Um, I don't know where you've been or how you've heard this message expounded upon, but I think that there are very clear signs of spiritual warfare here. And yet we fail in our industrious post-enlightenment world that we ignore. There are veiled and hidden ways in which Jesus wants to show his supernatural power in the midst of supernatural darkness, and to show that he was the Son of God. And in reality, this is really about who Jesus is despite us. This is an affirmation of who Jesus is. But also we're going to see this in the context of that he has supernatural power, not only just over the storms, but we'll see all over evil. And so let's walk through the text, shall we? And we're just going to take a look at verse 22. 
Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And let's stop here. If you remember in the text, there was a couple times in which Jesus actually asked to do something. And that was actually to be alone. If you look back in the passage, right after uh, Jesus hears the news, the sad news of his friend John the Baptist um, being beheaded, we see that in verse 13, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. See, Jesus longed for aloneness. And a couple weeks ago when we preached this text, we talked a little bit about how compassion is really the most stirring and the most controlling um, attribute about Jesus. That even in his compassion and in his absence of rest, he decided to care for the thousand, the five thousand, and to minister to them, and ultimately to, to, to feed them. But again, I just see it so interesting because it says immediately. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. In other words, he was forceful. He said, disciples, okay, now's the time. Get into the boat. Go over to the other side. I'm going to meet you. And then he dismissed the crowd. So we see Jesus is on both sides. He's dismissing the disciples to go on the other side, and he's dismissing um, the crowds. It is because he needed alone time to be in the presence of his father. He needed the time away to be in intimacy and solitude with the Lord. And here we see a powerful picture of Jesus being a man who is not only king, but also a man who depended on the presence and abiding in the presence of of his father. And so the, liter- the words literally compelled, he forced, he dismissed the crowds, and he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. If you look at Mark, also chapter 6, and then you'll also see that he was also really tired. He was probably drained at this point, ministering to a crowd of 5,000 plus already needing sleep and needing rest. And then ministering all day, all the way up to evening, um, and then to sundown, over 15,000 people. And then after that, he needed that time to go by himself, to be with the presence of the Lord. But it's not that he was just tired. He was also reflecting on the spiritual dangers that were coming about, about him. Remember, the paranoic, uh, the, paran- the paranoia, that Herod Antipas, um, that led him to go and kill John the Baptist. He was thinking about that, and he knew his life was going to be cut short. He realized also, and is reeling from the death of John the Baptist, he hadn't had time to really just grapple with the death of John. And so what we see here is also a shift in the narrative in which um, Herod and his cowardly execution r- show that Galilee had literally spiritually rejected Jesus. And because of that, because of Herod, that's when Jesus said, that's it. They have rejected me, and now I am shifting in my ministry because now I'm going to take that final road to the cross. 
Jesus is shifting in his ministry, and he needs all the spiritual strength necessary. Ultimately, the road of the cross was before him. He was making this last trip to Jerusalem and ultimately to his death. So don't think that Jesus was just tired from ministering. Don't just think that Jesus was just exhausted. Yes, he was all that and more, and still grieving and dealing with pain and suffering, but at the same time, he knew there was a shift that was coming. The shift that would lead to the last chapters of his life, and he needed the Father most of all. And we see that this was a time in which it continued. Man, he wasn't just praying a half an hour, an hour. He, just, he kept on praying. And, and the scriptures talk about how he was, had this intense focus time into the evening and into the night. Because as we see later, Jesus doesn't catch up with his disciples until the fourth watch of the night, which was probably between 3 to 6 a.m. And I think the Lord just convicted me of this, that, you know, we totally see the walking on water part, but we don't see the prayer part. Before Jesus even walked out to meet his disciples on the sea, we see that it was preceded by a close dependence, a communion with his Father. And perhaps we need to realize that we're no better. We, I need prayer. You need prayer. You need ultimately prayer, but also just this profound intimacy of the presence and the goodness and the embrace of a holy God. And it wasn't, hasn't it been so powerful in the last couple of weeks in which we have experienced, I believe, a fresh move of the Holy Spirit and a fresh move of his power and the embrace of, of God? Abiding us, reminding us that, hey, you are a small church, but you're okay. I'm still moving. You may not have a lead elder, but Jesus is that lead elder. He is that lead pastor, and he's with us. And we got a glimpse of that on, on Friday night at, at Night of Hope where we were just reminded through the corporate word and prophetic words that, that the Lord is with us. He loves us. And he says, stick to you. Stick to me. I'm with you. We need that. And that's how much Jesus needed his father for the days ahead. Jesus was battling to hear God in prayer because he knew a shift was going on. And you might feel that there's a shift going on in your life. And you are just wondering and high strung with anxiety or struggles or pain or just repercussions from the past and maybe the Lord is just saying be with me let me remind you son or daughter you are loved by me you are delighted in me and I love you with an everlasting love That's, let's let, let that rest in your heart tonight. And may you see a glimpse of that tonight. While Jesus was battling in prayer, it says in the scripture that evening came by and he was there alone. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. You know, I I wonder why Jesus didn't just go with his disciples and then just, you know, in the midst of that storm, just jump out of the boat and just, like, start walking on the water and just, like, you know, kind of skip the whole, like, oh, he's a ghost type of business and, <laughs> and, te- and rebuke the storm to be quiet. But he didn't do that. Uh, disciples, they were in a fishing boat. They was, it was rigged to handle this, the sudden storms that happened on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the, it says that there were many stadia away. One stadium would mean about 600 feet or equal to that. John's Gospel says that they were 25 to 30 stadia out, and which would put them out as far as three to four miles away. And they had battled the storm for over nine hours, and they literally were um, in the early evening battling after nine hours. In the previous incident, Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the boat, and this time, though, Jesus comes walking on the sea. Why is that? Why does Jesus have to make this kind of appearance? Well, It seems like he was setting it up because, again, he was bringing it back to the spiritual battle that was going on. When we look through the eyes of the Old Testament, we see there's deeper significance here. When you see in Genesis chapter 1 and and following that the sea is representative of darkness and chaos. The very beginnings in in the pages of Genesis, we see that the sea stood for the spiritual or the metaphysical darkness. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and without and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water. Sea was equivalent in the Old Testament times to chaos. We see that later in that first impression where Jesus was calming the sea. And remember, he just didn't tell the, the sea to, to be still. He rebuked the storm, which basically, again, gives rise to the fact that there is some spiritual significance here, that there was some kind of spiritual battle that was going on, and it's the same word that's used to rebuke demons. And so what we see is that there's evidence here in saying that there's a lot more than what we say, go out and get out of the boat and take a risk and take a step of obedience. We see evidence of this because also in your text, we also see that the word where it was, they said they were battered by the winds. That word means literally distressed or tormented. It literally means and is used in other places in the Gospels as demonic hostility against people. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, it talks about the centurion's servant who was paralyzed and was suffering terribly. Same word, and needed Jesus' divine healing. In Revelation 9, 5, it describes the demonic power of the fifth trumpet in which God lets loose a whole bunch of tribulations, and they were letting loose a bunch of locusts with the stings of the scorpion, and they were commanded not to torment anyone with the seal of God on their foreheads, but they were given permission to be unleashed on everybody else, and its sting was as strong as the scorpion. Same word here. So not only... Were they endangered by a raging sea? It seems like Jesus is in the midst of a raging spiritual battle, and that's why he comes onto the sea. 
He's not showing just his power over nature or over a raging storm, but Jesus is saying, I have all the spiritual power to wage war against the demonic places in my name. He was showing and making a statement to his disciples. And this could be mirror that Jesus was waking, uh, was walking on the sea. These fishermen, they saw everything. They've seen storms. They've seen gales. They've seen wind. But the text says that they cry like babies because they see Jesus. And they say, what is that? Is that a ghost? Same word that we get, phantom. And in the Old Testament, it see, it, 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 this word actually means deception, which they think that this ghost is not really Jesus, but some kind of, you know, 3D hologram or some kind of uh, spirit, disembodied spirit that represented Jesus but really was not him. And so this is where Jesus immediately comforts them, and he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He's saying, I'm not a deception. He's saying, I'm not a, a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm not something you see on that, that TV show, House Hunters or Ghost Hunters. I'm not a figment of your imagination. And I strike terror, but behold... I strike terror to the demonic world, but you're mine. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Gives a little bit more significance, doesn't it? That God is saying through this lens that Jesus is God. Jesus is echoing when he says, it is I. He is echoing the voice of God, of Yahweh, who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, who spoke to Moses to free and let his people go. And Moses asked, hey, who do I say sent me? And God, Yahweh says, I am who I am. And this also is echoed in the prophets, Isaiah 43, 10 through 13. The voice of Yahweh comes as a voice in the wilderness of their sin and their exile. And Israel was facing the judgment of their sin and facing years of exile. And yet God reminds them in verse 10 through 13, I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. So let's get this straight. Jesus is not just saying I'm more powerful than this storm. He's not just saying that I can just, you know, hush the winds and the waves with the sound of my voice, Jesus is saying, I am this God that has been prophesied of old from the Old Testament. I am this Redeemer. I am He. I am your Savior. I am the Lord, and I reign over all this chaos. I'm more powerful than this chaos that I'm walking on, and I am en route to defeating the enemy. So don't miss this fact, disciples. I am who I am. I'm saying that I am the eternal Lord, and I am going to come and redeem you from the enemy. Evil forces may come torment you and come against you, but disciples know it is I that is in your midst. Jesus is saying he's the divine Lord. And this picture and this vision of this experience of Jesus is going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. And they're going to go through much more than just natural 
problems and issues. They're going to face demonic and spiritual attack. They will be under persecution. They'll see their master being handed over to the Romans to be beaten and, and whipped and mocked and reviled and then crucified on a cross that's reserved for criminals and enemies of the state. They, 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 they will, and they will see that and they're going to just run. They're going to deny Jesus three times. They're going to claim that they didn't know him. They're going to get as far away as they can because they're demonically deceived to trust in their own comfort or whatever their eyes can see. But Jesus' words to them, that point says, I'm with you. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And to demonstrate that, he gets into the boat and that's when the wind miraculously ceases. And then it ends with that, that Jesus is worshipped as the son of God. And that's, and that's what we, I think, we skip over really easily because we want to get to the part where Peter goes and walks on the water, which is a part of it. What we see here in Peter, after this incredible encounter with the Jesus who walks on the water, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I love this because... Jesus, just on the heels of this, that Jesus has identified himself as the conquering Lord, the same God who has been prophesied in the Old Testament, who reigns over evil and chaos. Peter's fear is turned into faith. And he shouts back after the storm, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And notice that Peter's not just saying Lord out of respect. He's not just saying sir. He's just it really means far more. Peter is now talking to the one who has created the seas. And now he wants to press in on this fear. And he calls out, let me come out to you. And Jesus authoritatively says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he, went, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? <laughs> Apparently, Peter's not really scared about walking on water, right? It, it, like, the text actually just kind of makes it as a, a matter of fact, kind of like a passing comment. Oh, yeah, you know, and after Jesus kind of walked on water, you know, Peter got out and started walking with him, and then just taking a stroll along this raging sea. And I just kind of imagine, like, what, what did it look like for Peter to actually take that step? Was it like full-on Peter, like bungee-jumping Peter, like Mr. Skydiving Peter, and just like, wah, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to jump out of this and just like, just land, and if I sink, I sink, but I'm just, I'm going to do this. Or was Peter just like, "Ah, I'm not sure this is going to work, but this is, here goes nothing. I don't know what, I don't know. The text doesn't really say. But apparently, he had so was filled with so much faith in God that walking on the water was nothing. It was only when he started walking, and then it was actually the wind. That's when he gets scared. He hears the howl of the wind, 
He hears the merciless wind just blowing against him and surging seas, and all of a sudden he knocks his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to sink. At the same time, that faith took him out, that same faith, faith reels him back to the Lord and he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reaches out his hand. And remember, he chides him. He rebukes him. I think it's very clear here that he rebukes him. Jesus doesn't give him a spiritual pep talk. He didn't say, good job, Peter. You know, you made it all this way and you should be proud of yourself. Here's a participation award. (laughs) You know, he didn't do that. But he calls him. He rebukes him. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's doubt was this word, which means, same word, was just trying to serve two masters simultaneously. While this faith helped him to get up out and walk in the water, it didn't sustain him in the deepest trials. And this is instructive to us because, you know, we are going to fail like Peter, but it's because, and they will misunderstand Jesus Because later on, Peter totally screws up, and he says that, you know, Jesus, you can't be captured, you can't be killed. That's not God's plan for you. And Jesus starts rebuking him again and saying, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Basically, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, you're more on the enemy's side rather than my side. And so again, there's a lot more than if you want to get out of the water, then you've got to get out of the boat. This is Jesus saying that I'm Yahweh and I can defeat the evil powers of sin, Satan, and the world, and nothing will ever stop me. But you, disciples, you're going to go through times of failure and struggle and spiritual warfare, but really it's in the midst of that. As you're sinking in the mixes of the water, you're going to go through doubt and fear and struggle and ultimately failure. But in the midst of that, Disciples, can you worship? Worship didn't happen apart from fear or failure. It happened with fear and failure. I mean, it's comforting, guys, right? Spiritual warfare is happening all around us, and so often we're just so blind because we're just so hungry for Shipley's Donuts, Right? Or we just want to just get over this fast and, and just go on to other bigger things that we forget about the spiritual thing. But when we're fasting, we're in, totally in tune with the Lord. But you know what? When we're in spiritual warfare, it leads us to a heightened awareness of where we are. We are in the thick of it. And it's a lie to believe that you're anything apart from it. And that's what we see here, that in the midst of the doubts and the struggles and the failures, they begin to realize clearly for who Jesus is, that he is the one that the prophets, the patriarchs, and the kings all pointed to in the Old Testament. They didn't get it at that moment all the way, but they're beginning to understand clearly who Jesus is. And then they fell down, and they did something blasphemous, and they worshipped another man as Lord. If, I, if that's not a victory in spiritual warfare, I don't know what is. The fact that we can come here tonight to worship a Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago on a cross and to lift him high when he was lifted up on a cross, mocked and scorned and beaten, right? And then put into a tomb. And then as the scriptures say, After three days, he was risen. 
to show that he accomplished victory for us, that he has transferred us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light and of God, and that he's transferred our sinful souls that we were bound and 